Hebrews chapter 1, on this Christmas Eve, I want to share a few things with you. I want you to note one verse, and we're going to look at some of the others as well. But one verse to start out, Hebrews 1, 6. And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, and let all the angels of God worship Him. Let all the angels of God worship Him. And that's what happened in the skies above Bethlehem that night. Father, as we take a look at these things, I just ask for Your Spirit to inspire us and to encourage us to keep our ears open and our hearts fresh, Father, to hear Your Word tonight and to be blessed by what You would have to say. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. T'was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, and threw up the sash. Now, if you've never thrown up a sash, that's hard to do. <laughs> Clement C. Moore's famous 1823 visit from St. Nick is a quaint, playful, imaginative poem Many of you have read, heard it, uh, maybe even annually in your homes. I don't know. But it begins, I, I was thinking about this, with a still, quiet house. It's designed to set up the big reveal. You know, St. Nick showing up. Until then, everything's calm. Everything's quiet. Folks are in bed. It's chill. And then the right jolly old elf shows up and suddenly the the narrator of the poem is tearing cap and nap right off of his head. His, His quietness, his repose is over and it's just bursting with energy from that point forward. There's a bit of truth there for a Christmas Eve. Something to be said about a still, quiet house being interrupted with a burst of joy. We sing these favorite words, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Or the third stanza of that song, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. For God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, and I think, wait a minute. No ear may hear His coming? How silently the gift is given? Did someone forget to tell the angels? Because it was not a still, quiet night. I doubt there was a shepherd in the field that night who would say, yeah, the night passed quietly like every other. The gift was given. We barely even knew because it was such a whisper. I doubt it. You see, the way I read it in Luke chapter 2 is that the sky over Bethlehem exploded with glorious, joyful, celebratory declaration. Listen to the story. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in their fields and keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now, can you imagine him saying, I bring you good news. Shh! Great joy. 
No, good news, great joy. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I imagine the angel could hardly imagine what he was saying. How weird, how wonderful, how marvelous. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And only then can we sing Silent Night. Only then can we say, things quieted down in Bethlehem. Before then, you could have called it Beth Mayhem. Because those angels were not quiet in their presentation of the gospel. In the arrival of Jesus. They were elated. They were, you might say, high-spirited. Because they were high and they were spirits. I thank you. But they were celebrating good news of great joy. The angels. The angels. People are fascinated by angels. I remember years and years ago, wow, it must have been, well, let's just say a long time. I was a young youth pastor, and I was asked by a a young lady in our youth group to do a memorial service for her grandmother, who I didn't know. And I showed up and began talking to the family just to know something about this lady and to understand something about her. And and I asked this this teenager in our youth group on the side, I said, did she know Jesus? Was she a believer? It makes a difference in how I do a memorial service. Did she know Jesus? And she said, well, she really likes angels. She has angels all over her house, not just at Christmas. I mean, she's really into angels. Lots of people are. People find them fascinating. They're they're part of the curiosity of Christmas, the the mystery of the ages. And the Bible actually gives a lot of information about angels, various and sundry descriptions of them, from unnoticeable, as in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without even knowing about it. So an angel can show up be entertained by you, and you might not know at all. Could be the barista at Starbucks, for all you know. Probably not, but it could be. I don't know. Unnoticeable ones, they could be child care workers. The Bible describes them this way. Jesus said, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 18, verse 10. So you can really make the case for guardian angels. That's where that comes from. Flashing brilliance is another description we see of angels. Matthew 28, verse 3 says, His appearance was like lightning, and His clothing is white as snow. And the guards shook for fear because of Him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Oh, angels can be fearsome. Genesis 3.24 When God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, 
We're told that at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And I'll tell you what, if anyone ever did find the Garden of Eden and came face to face, or face, I should say, face to faces, with the cherubim, they would freak out. Because some of the description of at least some classes of angels in the Bible are absolutely bizarre. Listen to this, Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 12. Their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around. They got wheels, some of them. Full of eyes, which means you ain't getting away with nothing. And each one had four faces, and this is what I love. The first face, the face of a cherub, which by the way, the face of a cherub means calf-like. I'll prove it to you in just a second. The second, the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. Gang, this was on every single cherub that Ezekiel described. They all had four faces. Put that at the top of your Christmas tree. Now, I've joked about that for years to the point that the staff thinks it's really funny every year now annually to take this big, huge, like five-foot twinkle light angel and either stick it in my office all lit up or lean it against my office window. Leslie picked this up a couple years ago and wanted to put it in the display. And I'm like, no, no, unless it has four faces, we're not going to do it. Revelation chapter 4 verse 7 says the first creature, speaking again of cherubim, was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. That's how I know cherub-like or the face of a cherub is a calf. And the third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And what's interesting is when John saw these creatures, he only saw them looking at him from one direction. He saw each one of these four faces. Now had they turned, he would have seen each one of four different faces. And had they turned again, four different, and had they turned again, because the cherubim each have four faces, eyes all over the place, and I'm thinking, wow, that's bizarre. And that's what the Bible describes, at least of the cherubs in heaven. The four living creatures, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, says each one of them had six wings full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Angels know who is God. Angels, the most fearsome, the most awesome, and the most bizarre, know who the Almighty One is. And they worship Him day and night, nonstop, constantly. And that's the point of the whole rest of Hebrews chapter 1. This, this chapter that when we began this morning, we started to look at. That if, if angels know who God is, and the writer of this letter begins to make a contrast between angels, get this, it's important, between angels and Jesus, because Jesus is no angel. It's a fascinating view. Sadly, some people venerate angels. Some people lift angels up. They hold them up even as worship objects or objects of awe. The Apostle John, dear one to Jesus, he fell into that trap or or just about. Revelation 19.10, he said, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
And then this angel said to John, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The angels know who the Almighty is. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, the key verse of this entire book, as we talked about this morning, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is the final word of God. Now, again, we looked at that. We opened up the first uh, three or four verses reading God after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in Son, literally, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature who upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All describing Jesus. All this amazing, awesome picture of who Jesus is and that is Emmanuel. God with us. God in the flesh. God among us. The final word. God spoke to us in Son because the Son of God shows us God in every way, shape, and form. But we come to the end of that three-verse intro that's so awesome and you're just stunned and in awe of Jesus and then you get to verse 4 which says that He, having become as much better than the angels, as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Wait a minute, what? What? I mean, you're giving me this this case, you're laying out this case that Jesus is God, and then all of a sudden you make a comment like, having become as much better than the angels. What is he saying? Verse 4 is very simply talking about the fact that while Jesus was pre-existent as God, verses 1 through 3, he became someone unique in all eternity. Do you realize that? That what the Bible teaches about Jesus is He made a shift, a change? For the first time in all eternity, God became man. And ever since then, has existed as the God-man. There is no one like Jesus. There will never be another like Jesus. You ain't no God, so you're not going to be like Him in that way. Jesus put on flesh. And when He resurrected, the Bible teaches He resurrected in His humanity and in His divinity. But eternally, there is nobody like Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. The Word made flesh. Again, the God-man. And so He's better than the angels because the angels were created. He was not. They were created. He is Creator. Better than the angels because He was pre-existent, not created, but also because then He inherited a better name than they. Well, what does that mean? I'll come back to it in just a minute. But let me give you a few more fast facts about angels that we find right here in chapter 1 along with some profound truths about Jesus. Verse 6. Verse 6 tells us. What about verse 5? Don't worry about verse 5. Just go to verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. I love the reference in your song, Rachel, about burning beings. Did that catch anybody else? You read that and you go, burning beings? That's bizarre. That's a description of angels. Because the Bible describes describes them as winds, And as as flames of fire. 
What he says right here, and literally from verse 5 all the way down through verse 14, he quotes 13 passages out of the Hebrew Scriptures. This is a very Hebrew book. And so as he quotes these things, first of all, we realize from Psalm 97, verse 7, from Psalm 104, verse 4, and you probably have that in the margins of your Bibles if you're looking, but we learn that angels are created beings because He makes them, the Bible tells us. So they're created beings. They're, they're not like Jesus, not like God in that they were always, but they have a starting point. And secondly, we realize that angels are ministers of God. All the way down in verse 14, we see that they are ministering spirits. They are servants of God sent out to serve. And we learn thirdly that these created beings, these minister servants of God, are like wind and flame. Now what does that mean? Why wind and flame? What happens to wind and flame? Well, both are powerful. Ask people living in Southern California. Wind and flame are powerful and almost unstoppable, but get this, they are also temporary. You ever considered the fact that angels are not eternal beings? Oh, once created, they may continue to live forever, but they have a start point, therefore not eternal. Because to be truly eternal, we, in Jesus, will live on for eternity, but we all will have had a start point somewhere in eternity. God does not, angels do. So angels are not eternal, they're temporary. Winds die down. Flame goes out. Angels are not eternal. And that's interesting. I never thought about that before. There is a breath of wind. They're like a flash in the pan at times. And that is in, note this, the reason he points this out, that is in contrast to Jesus Christ, who is not like wind. He is not like a flame that goes away. He is again the same yesterday and today and forever. He is eternal. He is permanent. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Revelation 1.8 tells us. But the most important characteristic about these heavenly beings known as angels is that they are, according to verse 6, worshipers of God. Listen, they are never to be worshipped. Angels are not to be worshipped. They are not to receive worship. We know of one guardian cherub, one angel who desired to be worshipped and fell mightily from heaven. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 tells the story about Satan. They are not to be worshipped. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head who is Jesus. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, we said this this morning, if even, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3 is an interesting verse. Do you not know that we will judge angels? You ever thought about that one? The Bible says you will judge angels. And I'm preparing right now because the last time I stubbed my toe and the guardian angel was not there to block it, we're going to have a conversation about that. The surgery I recently went through, oh, we're going to talk. We will judge the angels. I don't even know what that means, what that will look like. 
But it tells us that the angels are not above us. They are servants of God like anyone who chooses to be a servant of God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are like the angels. They are like you in that same way. Ultimately, the message of the Hebrew writer regarding angels is this. Jesus is innately and eternally superior. Now, there are groups who don't think so. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, believe, now, maybe not all of them even realize this, but their own doctrine states that Jesus is simply a human personification of the archangel Michael. So they worship an angel and not the Jesus of Scripture. Or uh, Mormons will tell you that he's the brother of Lucifer, the devil. I say this, I don't mean to offend, although I am an equal opportunity offender. (laughs) The reality is, my friends, not only are both positions dead wrong, where the Bible is concerned, they are heretical. Because they diminish Jesus. And the Bible seeks to exalt Jesus as God. Back in verse 3, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification from sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The Word, who is God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 Jesus is no angel. Jesus is God. And by the way, if Jesus was not God, then the very sacrifice of God to purify us from all sin would be null and void. It would not work. So while angels may be curious and intriguing and and even fascinating, Jesus Christ is, Isaiah 9-6, wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. Now, after the angels burst on the scene that deep night over Bethlehem, when the hubbub ceased, all that was left was Jesus. Jesus Christ. Now look back at verse 5. For to which of the angels did He say, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. And again, I will be a father to Him, and He will be a son to Me. That's a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, and from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all the angels of God worship Him. When He brings the firstborn into the world. Now that confuses some people. The firstborn Son is not His existence by birth. What that speaks of is that He is the heir apparent to God. Which in the Jewish mindset means equal to. The heir, the inheritor as we talked about this morning, means equal to the Father. Jesus and the Father are equal. Jesus is God, just as God the Father is God. It's just a restatement of verse 4 there in verse um, verse 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, Now you may be sitting there. If you're not drifting off into Candyland, you may be sitting there thinking, all right, okay, let's accept for a moment a premise. We'll give you this, that Jesus was pre-existent as God, and then He set that aside and He put on flesh and He became a man. So when did He, verse 4, become as much better than the angels? What about that? 
When did he go from one position to a, a greater position? How did he inherit? It's a great question. And Psalm 2 verse 7 tells us, which is also verse 5 in chapter 1, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So answer me this question. When was Jesus begotten as son? Anyone know? At his resurrection, not at his birth. The only begotten of the Father. He was not begotten as son in a manger just outside Bethlehem. No, he was begotten as son in a tomb just outside Jerusalem. As he rose from the dead. Well, how do you know that? Acts chapter 13 verse 32. Paul says, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children. In that he raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The begottenness of Jesus doesn't speak of his birth as a baby in Bethlehem. The begottenness of the eternal son speaks of his resurrection. And in that moment, Jesus becoming the eternal God-man. To live forever unique in all of eternity. And he's got a better name than any angel. What is his better name? Wouldn't you like to know that? Revelation 19.12 His eyes are a flame of fire on his head or many diadems. And he has a name written on him. Ready? Write this down. Which no one knows except himself. His better name is so awesome. Only Jesus knows. But I can tell you something else. This better name that the Hebrew writer is talking about isn't just a title. It speaks of His nature. He has a better nature. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. Not just the angels. Every name ever named falls short of the name given to Jesus so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But here is another absolute mind blower. Listen to verse 8. But of the Son he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Did you hear that? Of the Son, God the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever. And then He says in verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. God calls Him God. If you ever wonder, is Jesus God or not? I've heard people make that comment or try to make that claim. Well, God certainly thinks so. Because God is the one who calls Jesus God. Man, stuff that in your sock and hang it on the mantle. Matthew 22, verse 42. Jesus said this. I love how Jesus tripped up the Pharisees. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, in a good Jewish response, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And we're told from that point on, they didn't ask him any more questions. Awesome. Whose son is he? 
Who is He? The implication, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. His throne is eternal. Remember, angels are like winds and fire. So, not eternal in the way that the sun is. They're winds and fire, so they're a hot mess by comparison. Jesus loves what is right, hates what is wrong. Don't you want to be around someone like that? Someone who always hangs his hat on right and good and justice and fairness for everybody. That's Jesus. And He absolutely hates when you are wronged. Or when we do wrong. He doesn't like that either. He's just not about those things. But greatest of all here, I love how He says, He's been anointed with the oil of gladness above His companions. What does that tell us? He's dripping with the anointing of joy. Jesus is joyful. We were watching a movie. We're all kind of packed in my room. The kids and Cheryl and I were watching a Christmas movie the other night and Naomi was, was right there beside me. And she's leaning against me and we're watching the movie and she goes... And she looks at me and she goes, Dad, you smell good. Which is good. <laughs> I saw her sniffing. I'm like, something's not going to be good here. You know, I was going to blame the dog as quickly as possible. Reggie! <laughs> she, goes, she goes, Dad, you smell good. And I'm like, yeah, well, I was anointed with English leather. So, been using that since I was 17. Right? Hey, I find a good smell, I stick with it. Anointed with it. Man, you, you ever wonder why people young and old flocked to Jesus? Because He was anointed with gladness. He was just the kind of guy you wanted to be around. You couldn't be around Him long without being full of joy, being full of happiness, being full of gladness. And this world needs it badly, don't we? Doesn't this culture need a little gladness for a change? I, I couldn't believe it. Taylor Swift, and I'm not a big fan, whatever. She's a you know performer. Some of you like her, some of you don't. I don't really care. But she tweeted out on her birthday that 2017 was a good year. For her it was. And she got massive flack for it from some of her fans. How can you say 2017 is a good year? It's a horrible year. Everything's gone wrong. Just people railing on her. And I remember reading some of those tweets and going, boy, this world needs a little shot of gladness. We need some joy around here. I, I, I think you would agree. I'm sick and tired of the anger and the vitriol and the hatred and the lawlessness and the meanness. Man, enough already. Let's be glad. We should be glad. And I promise you, spend a little time with Jesus and you will be glad. You can't be around Him and not at least get some of that dripping anointing of joy on you as well. Verse 10, And you, in the beginning, you Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. This is Psalm 102, verse 25. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all become like old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They also will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And he's quoting from Psalms, he's quoting from Isaiah, pulling all of this together to make a stunning point that the eternality of Jesus is awesome, but by comparison... This world is getting old and dingy. This world needs a washing. We need laundry day bad. 
Because this world is like an old garment and you keep it. My dad, I love my dad, but he had his Saturday work shirt. I remember when the shirt was white. I do. I also remember when it was really more of an orange color. And then kind of a sickly brown. And he put it on every Saturday. And every Saturday my mom would say, I'm throwing it away. Oh, it's my work shirt. I'm comfortable in this shirt. It's my work shirt. You know, and he'd put it on. Time to roll it up, Dad. Time to chuck out the old garment. And what the writer is saying here is that's the world. The world needs a cleaning. The world needs to be changed. But remember, Jesus never changes. Always remains the same. Now, you might ask the question, and let's get back to Christmas Eve. Why, if He's so great, if He's so changeless, if He is so mighty, as compared to angels, as compared, obviously, to the things of the world that that will perish, that need to be rolled up and washed, if He's all that, why did He start out as a baby? Why, why did he do that? And I'll tell you why. Because if God showed up on day one in all his grandeur and glory, silent night would have been fright night. We would have run screaming out of Bethlehem. The streets would have emptied out in sheer terror. We all would have responded exactly like the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. Listen to how they reacted. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. We can't come near the mountain. We can't even hear His voice without it being terrifying to us. You speak to us, Moses, but not God. They cried out. Just hearing His voice, just sensing the rumbling of His Spirit on Mount Sinai was absolutely terrifying to them. And so what did God do? They stood at a distance. And He looks at you and He looks at me and says, I don't want you to stand at a distance. I don't want you to be far from me. I don't want you over there while I'm over here. So he came in the most non-threatening way possible. That's why he showed up as a baby. Just like the angel said, Luke chapter 2, verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And even shepherds, outcasts, couldn't resist going to check out this little baby born in Bethlehem. People who say God wants to keep me at a distance don't know God. He's done everything to get as close to you and to me as possible. For for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Let me finish this up. But to which of the angels, verse 13, has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And that is Psalm 110 that he quotes there, verse 1. It's the psalm of the prince made king. It is a powerful prophecy. The entire psalm of the coming Christ. And it talks about Jesus right now, ready and waiting to return. 
Angels, for their part, are amazing creatures. Wonderful, interesting, curious. They can fly. They can fight. They can instant message. They can shout. They can serve. They can sing. They can worship God. But I'll tell you one thing that angels can never do. They cannot save you. And they cannot save me. See, only Jesus could do that. So let me end with this question. What were the angels really celebrating in the skies over Bethlehem that night? What were the songs? What was the shouting? What was the heralding really all about? Oh, sure, they were worshiping. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. As the writer says back in verse 6, let all the angels of God worship him. Yes, they were celebrating Jesus. Yes, they were worshiping God, but they were doing something else. And it's something we need to not miss. It's verse 14. Are they, that is angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Luke chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus said, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They were proclaiming the gospel with joy because they knew it meant salvation for a lost world. They were shouting, Messiah has come, that we might be saved. And what I want to say to you tonight is that it is never a silent night until after the angels have been heard on high. Meaning what? Meaning until the angels have rejoiced over your salvation, you will not know peace. You will not know a silent night until after the wondrous gift is given and received. Only then, after the angels rejoice with good news of great joy, only then will the soul find peace. Because you've received the gift. And I hope you'll think about that. Don't let your Christmas be all paper, wrappings, Christmas trees, and Santa Claus. Hear the truth. The offer of salvation eternally from an eternal God through Jesus Christ, who is Himself God, it's offered to you tonight. Let's pray together. Father, You know the heart. You know how to move. And Lord, I have become convinced over the years I have no need of manipulations or tricks or chicanery to try and get people to to come to faith in You. I don't have to worry about that. Because Lord, You know how to knock on a heart. And I, I hope You're knocking tonight. I think You are. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here among us tonight who's considering these things, that the thought, the consideration won't drop. But the reality of who Jesus is, the awesome truth of God among us, will become so real tonight that decisions will be made. And I pray that we might all be blessed with the oil of gladness that comes of being with you and around you. And yes, Lord, celebrating the gift of your presence with us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.